0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 37, Contraband. As we mentioned last time, Union naval forces did not retreat far from Norfolk following the loss of that city and the Gosport Naval Yard. In fact, they set up shop right across the broad mouth of the James River at Fort Monroe, near the town of Hampton, situated on an island the fortress couldn't be assaulted so easily by the Confederacy, which at that point lacked an navy entirely. Furthermore, with Virginia militia stretched thin trying to hold down the land from Harper's Ferry all the way to Norfolk, the Federal troops on hand walked into the very small town of Newport News, taking control of a good stretch of the so-called Virginia Peninsula. Now incidentally, not far away from all of this, lay the small village of Yorktown, side of the famous American and French victory over the British in the Revolutionary War. Now, from the Union perspective, Fort Monroe was pretty well situated. To attack this Union outpost, Confederates in Norfolk would need to march all the way around the York River, all the way through Petersburg, nearly to Richmond, and then down the length of the Virginia Peninsula. And the Confederacy, still desperately raising and organizing its force to counter the Union, was in no position to do so. This allowed the national forces much-needed breathing room. In addition, Fort Monroe's location gives it a considerable advantage. The fortress occupies a small barrier island, although today Inville has transformed it into a peninsula. In 1861, however, it was a nigh-unbreakable fortification built on the pentagonal plan. The Confederacy hardly had a way to reach it, much less successfully assault it. The fort's engineers, who included in distant memory Robert E. Lee himself, had wrought a tough and versatile stronghold, with ample room for expansion and a large garrison. To command this fortification effort, Lincoln set just about the only commander available who had shown any spine, Benjamin Butler, promoted to Major General on May 13, 1861. Butler showed real foresight in deploying his Massachusetts men quickly to the capital and a deft hand in bypassing Baltimore, but he had not neglected other positions in the process. Although we didn't cover it previously, Butler dispatched two full regiments, or half of his force, to the Virginia front where they provided a powerful garrison. Butler's quick rise in rank will eventually cause a number of issues, But for the moment, he was just about the only man leading instead of following, and Lincoln badly needed some energy in the service. Virginia was now the front line in the expanding war effort, and if Lincoln needed commanders anywhere, he needed them there. Besides, Butler's political influence and status as a prominent Democrat meant that the war couldn't easily be framed as a purely Republican cause. Now, Benjamin Butler may at first have appeared an unlikely champion for the Union. We've observed previously that in the run-up to the 1860 election, he campaigned inside the Democrats to nominate, of all possible men, Jefferson Davis. He believed that Davis as president would help ward off even the slightest possibility of secession. That particularly quixotic goal avoided, and the war now a reality, however, well, it's not difficult to view that Butler remained a political pragmatist but deeply loyal to his country, and nearly all Northern Democrats were, in truth. Nonetheless, this makes the actions we will discuss today especially significant in retrospect. Now, all the proceeding was true, but Lincoln had another reason to dispatch Butler to Virginia, and that was to get him out of Maryland. When Butler arrived in Maryland and set about keeping order in it, he went to considerable lengths to intimidate any would-be secessionists. His high-handed tactics worked, but they also caused more than a little political backlash, especially given that Butler did much of it without clear orders from the military chain of command. Surprisingly, even Loyalist legislators don't really like it when you roll artillery up outside of their voting halls. One way or the other, right or wrong, Lincoln could now spare Butler in Maryland, and could make use of him elsewhere. So he did. And events were to prove that Butler made a poor fighting general, but he was about as clever a man as could be found on earth, capable of matching wits with, well, anyone alive, except on the field of battle. At Fort Monroe, Butler found a convenient solution at a stroke, and more or less began the process of dissolving American slavery and he accomplished this so casually that quite a few histories of the war failed to mention the event at all. At the same time Union troops were shoring up Fort Monroe, the secessionist sympathizing Virginia militia in nearby Norfolk kept themselves busy throwing up earthworks and placing captured cannon wherever they could build up a defensive line. However, they didn't much care for the back-breaking labor of digging and entrenching. Few soldiers ever care for digging holes if they can possibly avoid it. And Southerners, however, or at least the elite few which often filled out the ranks of the early war military, were supposed to be gentlemen, not quellereux laborers. They were not perhaps afraid of some hard work in hunting, or managing horses, or brutalizing their slaves, or glorying in battle, but tedious labor like shoveling dirt was hardly fitting tasks for gentlemen. They signed up to become warriors, not to become ditch-digging jobs bodies. However, having gone to war to defend slavery, the secessionists had a convenient solution at hand. If you're going to make war to defend slavery, it seems obvious to make slavery a war asset. Pro-Confederate commanders immediately saw that African-American slaves could be forced to do much of the hard work for the soldiers, conserving morale and manpower for active military operations. In addition, more than a mere handful of Confederate soldiers marched to war with an enslaved manservant to handle these most arduous tasks, as well as everyday menial labor in camp. This, in their eyes, was how gentlemen should make war, fighting battles and claiming the rewards of honor, while dwelling in fine style at home or away. As a pragmatic measure, it meant that fewer men were needed for camp tasks, and freed up time and energy for training and fighting. Well, all in theory, of course, for at this moment nothing more than a few happenstance skirmishes were occurring. To be clear about all this, at the moment we are now discussing, there is a more narrowly defined political conflict about whether or not there shall exist a southern confederacy dedicated to slavery. In time, the fires of civil war shall become a crucible, which forces the struggle into a radical crusade to finally end slavery a totalizing social transformation. Slavery is yet a strength of the would-be confederacy. Slavery meant that millions of African Americans toiled in the fields daily, growing the food and fueling the war effort and freeing their masters for war. To the slaveholders, and even to many northerners at this moment, this was entirely natural, perhaps even cosmically right and just. Some men, like Jefferson Davis, or for that matter, George McClellan, would not or could not see otherwise. Yet the slaves themselves, as it turned out, disagreed most strenuously with this amusingly self-centered vision of slave-holding warriors. In a move that, quite frankly, shocked only those who wished to be shocked, several such men working on the fortifications near Fort Monroe absconded over to the federal lines, rowing a boat across the harbor, actually, on the apparent theory that, well, could be much worse on the Union side they probably had a pretty accurate notion that Massachusetts troops were present in a fight against slave owners, and that boded well for them. The northern soldiers duly picked them up. For the Union troops involved in this affair, no matter what opinion they personally had regarding slavery, they did their duty properly and handed the runaway slaves over to the officers to deal with. And we should stress here, That while most people had some opinion about slavery in the abstract, quite a few might never have had the opportunity to meet a slave or a former slave previously. Those who lived in rural areas in the north might never even have met an African American at all. This moment, seemingly unimportant, represented a huge cultural shockwave in American history. Even Butler's troops, coming as they did from Massachusetts, one of the most abolition-friendly jurisdictions and with a large free population, now confronted slavery in living flesh and not as an abstract idea. Ironically, the next step in this drama came from a Confederate officer who unintentionally provided General Butler with the opportunity to display his notorious cunning. After Major General Butler took in the slaves, a Confederate officer, Major John Carey, Appeared the next day near Union lines. Major Carey was a Southern gentleman and a teacher at a military academy. He dealt honorably once in uniform with his Union counterparts, but he was evidently no legal scholar. Major Carey requested the return of the African American fugitives, and this is the very strange part. He cited the Fugitive Slave Act. Now, if you don't recall, that exceptionally controversial act passed into the body of law all the way back in the Compromise of 1850, and indeed specified that the free states did have to turn over any slaves that escaped their territory, as well as creating specific mechanisms to enforce that. On the latter point, the Virginia slave owners automatically erred, since the law did specify the process required to operate, and none of that involved soldiers brandishing guns President Millard Fillmore notwithstanding. In theory, the slaves ought to have been brought before a judge who would then adjudicate the issue. Under the circumstances, of course, there were no magistrates in Virginia to whom Benjamin Butler would defer. At this point in time, other federal officers mostly returned fugitive slaves to masters who claimed them. The Union army was still coming into being. It was claiming to Return to law and order, regions of the sole and unified country, which had merely fallen into rebellion and chaos. The army did not claim to be in a mission of war against hostile states. As such, they did not feel it wise, or even legitimate, to strike off the chains of the slave when no lawful authority condone it. And at this moment in the first few months of war, President Lincoln functionally sustained such a policy for reasons of statecraft. This was, in a way, a continuation of his desire to avoid needless provocation in the weeks before the fall of Fort Sumter. Naturally, the hearts of such officers, or for that matter, Lincoln's own feelings, did not always agree with such treatment or policy. Yet it was viewed as necessary in the context of the time, when Maryland and Kentucky and Missouri seemingly might slip from the Federal Allegiance at any moment. But as we mentioned, General Butler might never have become a great warrior, but in the field of legal combat and politics, he excelled. In response to the somewhat impertinent demand, Butler seized upon the rather non-trivial issue that Virginia was, at that specific moment, declaring itself outside of the United States. If the Virginia militia acknowledged the laws of the United States, then of course they admitted themselves to be committing armed revolt against their rightful sovereignty. If, however, there were two belligerent powers at play, then Butler pointed out that no laws or treaties existed between them. Major Carey, stuck on the horns of this particular dilemma, ultimately gave up in confusion and left. Yet Butler had just set an important precedent as casually as you might eat a sandwich. But within a couple weeks, he would articulate this concept in a formal communication to the government, and this was vitally important. In it, Butler classified the slaves as potential contraband of war. This centered around the point that, from a purely legal perspective, slaves counted as chattel property. In wartime, long-standing precedent allowed combatants to seize this sort of movable property, as distinct from real property like land, if it was being used for military purposes. Now, this usually meant arms, tools, tents, horses, and mules, and the like. But by the same logic, slaves, too, could be taken from Confederates, at least if they were in active use to dig trenches or build fortifications— or even cooking in military camps. Conveniently, the three men who escaped to Fort Monroe, by the name of Frank Baker, Shepard Mallory, and James Townsend, had all been put to work constructing fortifications at freshly captured Norfolk. Of course, doing that would merely have left the United States as potentially the greatest slave master on Earth, which Lincoln and the Republicans had no interest in. But, all, and all of this was happening in like two weeks, Butler also included a further proposal. In his estimation, the slaves could simply be freed by the will and action of government. Butler asked key and crucial question, has not all proprietary relationship ceased? This provided an elegant and powerful solution to the problem of slavery, at least in the direct military field and it was an explosive suggestion, provided in the least explosive way possible. Whether he knew it or not, actually, no, he entirely understood the situation. Butler implicitly offered up the framework for a political and economic threat to slavery, but phrased in a way that even the most ardent pro-slavery, say, Kentuckian, could accept. It was not hard to see that, while Lincoln had been from the start trying to offer some carrots to end the secession crisis, here lay a mighty fine stick within easy reach to complement it. Soldiers serving in the Virginia militia or the Confederate armed forces might feel confident as long as they had their slaves to rule over, but take those away, or credibly threaten to do so, and perhaps a measure of intimidation could work where attempted compromise had failed. It is worth noting here, that the attempt will not work. But that doesn't mean it wasn't worth trying. Even a hard line pro-slavery Southerner such as John C. Calhoun himself had shied away from secessionism precisely on the belief that slavery could never, would never, survive outside of the Union. And perhaps because he was also, for all of his faults, still a patriot in the depths of his soul. Other Southerners could have agreed with the logic in that. The difficulty is that once men began to arm and fight, it became devilishly difficult, if not impossible, to actually stop the war from progressing. And the United States was on the verge of Bull Run. Shots had been fired in anger, and blood would be spilled. But that all lay in the future. The importance of the moment was that it was a policy Lincoln could support without re- angering the remaining slave states. Slaveholding border states might not specifically like it, but they couldn't deny the logic that slaves used for military purpose could be lawfully captured, just the same as if it were a horse or a hammer. And if the federal government chose not to keep such men enslaved, well, the remaining Union states had no real grounds to complain, because obviously, they said that a master could emancipate slaves. And at this very moment, The people of the border states were thinking very hard about whether they were Southerners or Americans first. All would, in fact, choose the Union, if we're counting West Virginia. But they also all had their own pro-Confederate factions. Missouri obviously was still locked in its own miniature civil war at this moment, and we've seen events in Maryland. But Kentucky lay riven with dissent over the issue, and would not entirely leave the fence until November. Lincoln well understood the strategic and political factors at stake, quipping that he hoped to have God on his side, but must have Kentucky. In a larger sense, though, the contraband principle also provided a lawful way for the Union to more subtly fight against slavery, at least if local commanders so wished. The nature of all civil wars as political acts necessarily change the nature of fighting. Wood is allowed, encouraged, or forbidden against a foreign foe may be forbidden, discouraged, or required against a domestic one. In the case of the Civil War at hand, the early war period tended to feature more gentlemanly conduct than later on, which is hardly unprecedented in history. Wars tend to take on a life of their own, and lead to greater radicalism and violence over time, not immediately. Yet the Civil War would, to a strong degree, be framed as a law-bound cause on both sides, not a lawless revolution. Both the Union and Confederacy tried to justify themselves with, if not pure legal fictions, then at minimum legal fig leaves. War waged on pure strength might suffice for a despot, but not for free peoples. And whatever else they were, both the Confederacy and Union believed they were free men, African Americans and Native Americans, and immigrants sometimes excepted. Congress would confirm the contraband approach in August, and even expand it, but Lincoln would push back against attempts by other commanders to go further than this limit, at least for the time being. Those are events we'll cover when we begin to talk about John C. Fremont and General David Black Dave Hunter. However, in the immediate situation, even the Confederacy couldn't muster a great deal of anger over the contraband practice. It certainly failed to rile up slave owners, well, not more than they already were, In fact, Butler's anti-slavery approach paid immediate and measurable dividends. The very day after the first three contrabands appeared, another eight showed up, and they didn't stop coming thereafter. At Hampton Roads alone, hundreds of slaves snuck their way over to the Union lines in the coming weeks, for no attempts by local slave owners to clamp down could possibly keep quiet the news that federal forces welcomed slaves with open arms and paid work. Needing to do something with all the people coming over, Benjamin Butler began to have them assist the federal troops as they had the Virginia militia. In theory, this again could have been merely substituting one master for another, but neither commander nor soldiers were that stupid. Even before the formal word that the former slaves would be emancipated came down the line, Butler made sure to treat them all quite well. Within months, in fact, a thriving community of former slaves, assembled around the fort, dubbed the Grand Contraband Camp. It became the first of several major freedmen's towns in the wake of Union advances. A considerable amount of historical irony lay behind this. Old Point Comfort, the site of Fort Monroe, lay essentially on the very spot where all the way back in 1619 Dutch privateers had offloaded the first human cargo To the surprised but not entirely displeased settlers of Virginia. In this soil the seeds of slavery had been sown, from which sprang ultimately the harvest of secession. And here, too, the slow roll towards full emancipation began. It was not the end of slavery. That would not occur until the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution, after four long years of struggle. It was not really the beginning of the end either where there was still no general attack on slavery. But here, from the clever tongue of a Massachusetts politician, came the beginning of the beginning of the end. And even at this point, it seems that sympathetic federal commanders, including Major General Butler, often went far beyond their authority in practice. And they didn't necessarily ask any difficult questions when African Americans showed up very soon many commanders will have too much to deal with to spare any effort to assist slave owners in maintaining order anyhow. Much work remained to be done in the military and civil fields. Yet it is worth noting that over the course of only one full year from this moment, the United States went from tacitly pro-slavery to the verge of the Emancipation Proclamation. A new kind of war had begun and it would not stop until the last chains lay sundered, although few knew it yet. One man who did see it was Frederick Douglass. He reproached the Union for being slow to deploy abolition as a principle of war. He urged them to recruit black men for the service. When first the rebel cannon shattered the walls of Sumter and drove away its starving garrison, I predicted that the war then and there inaugurated would not be fought entirely by white men. Only a moderate share of sagacity was needed to see that the arm of the slave was the best defense against the arm of the slaveholder. All of that would indeed occur. But that still lay in the future, and many battles would have to take place first. So join us next week as we continue to explore the Civil War and perhaps the first true battle This has been the American civil war podcast. Thank you for listening.